My name is Heather. The Old Testament reading today is found in Isaiah 64, verses 1 through 4. If only you would tear open the heavens and come down. Mountains would quake before you like igniting brushwood or making water boil. If you would make your name known to your enemies, the nations would tremble in your presence. When you accomplished wonders beyond all our expectations, when you came down, mountains quaked before you. From ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God but you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. The word of the Lord. Good morning, I'm Meredith. The New Testament reading is found in 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 9. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God, thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Chauncey. Please stand for the gospel reading found in Mark 13, 32-37. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to our Lord Christ. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. As we've said already this morning, this is the first Sunday of Advent. And uh, maybe for some of you, that's kind of a new term, and you're wondering, okay, is Advent kind of a holier word that we can use instead of Christmas? And you're, you're kind of saying, okay, I know, I get it, Glenn. Our culture has a war on Christmas, and so we're trying to reclaim it by using a different word. Aha, very clever. Uh, no, that's, that's not quite what this is. Actually, uh, the, way that the, the way that Christians have marked time throughout the centuries is to trace the life of Christ. And so the, the Christian year really begins with Advent. It begins with this place of anticipation and longing and looking and waiting. And then we get to the actual Christmas season, which goes 12 days from December 25th to January 5th. And then from there into Epiphany, the moment where we recognize Jesus as the King, Jesus as the Son of God. And then after a short while, we enter into Lent, a season of, of, of humbling ourselves and repenting and preparing ourselves as we think about Jesus lowering himself and journeying toward the cross. And then, of course, there's Holy Week and Good Friday and Easter Sunday when God raised Jesus from the dead. Easter goes on seven weeks while Lent was only six because the feast outlasts the fast. And it's, it's kind of the symbol of that, even in the way we mark the time. And then there's Pentecost Sunday when we think about the Spirit being poured out and the church being born. And so this is the whole story that we're about to 
reenact, relive in a way as the people of God. But do you know, we're not simply reliving or reenacting a story, we're actually also waiting. The word Advent simply means arrival. And in a Christian sense, we could say it is God's arrival on the scene. Christmas is this moment where God came near. God came to dwell among us, to rescue us. But in a very real sense, we're also waiting for a future arrival or a future appearing or revealing. These are some of the words the New Testament uses to talk about the second thing. So you might say that here we are, we find ourselves living between two appearings, two arrivals. And so when we celebrate Advent, we are in one sense looking back and saying, hey, let's relive the story. But we are in another sense looking forward and saying, God, look at the world around us. Everything that you have accomplished through your death and resurrection, we need it to come to bear. We need it to really happen and take place. We long for it. And so while at the, when we look back, we say God has come, as we look forward, we say, come Lord Jesus, come. The prayer of the church that we see in the book of Revelation. And so then the question for us this morning is, how do we live in the in-between? How do we live in the meantime? How do we live between these two things, the, the hope that has already come and yet this thing that we are looking forward to, the fullness of it? What does it mean to live with hope? If we listen to the culture around us or the world around us, you might pick up that hope is really just a synonym for progress. There is kind of this secularized version of it, this notion of progress. That Listen, if we could just develop more technology, become smarter, attain more wealth, spread democracy, then the whole world will get better and better and better. Progress marches on. Except that, If you've been a student of history much at all, you'll realize that this has never really worked. That we've forgotten things we once knew, we've lost things we once had. That the the line of history is not an inevitable march of progress. In fact, there there were probably few periods of, of time in the modern era that have been so full that were so full of optimism like the early 1900s, the turn of the 20th century, full of tremendous optimism. And yet it turned out to be one of the bloodiest centuries of human history. Because this notion of progress is not alone enough to give us hope. It always leaves us short. And so then the the question is, well, what what do Christians do? What do Christians have to say? If If progress is the secular vision of hope, what is the Christian vision? Well, unfortunately, if you listen to much of what Christians have to say, it sounds like the Christian vision of hope is escape. Yeah, the world is just going to get worse and worse, and it's just terrible, and it's all going bad, and it's all going wrong, but hey, we're getting out of here. It's like that old preacher joke, you know, he's talking about the end times, he says, I don't know about Armageddon, but when it happens, Armageddon out of here, you know. And so to a world that is desperate for hope, to a world that has realized that progress in itself is hollow, is the best that the church offers some version of escape, of being airlifted out, of saying, okay, yeah, I don't really know what's going to happen, but good luck with that. We're out of here. 
Our gospel text this morning was from Mark's gospel, chapter 13. And if you turn there, we'll read again, verse 32 through 36. I think there's something for us to notice in this passage this morning. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work. That's a word you can circle. And commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Now, many of these passages in the Gospels have been taken with some sort of ominous language. Like, you've probably heard these words with, like, really scary music under it or accompanied by end times charts, right? And so it's like, okay, this, see, there's an earthquake that's happening here, and look what's happening in the Middle East, and so therefore, dun-dun-dun, right? <laughs> Except that there, there's, there's really good scholarship to say we ought to read many of these words in light of what happened in Jesus' own day. So shortly after the time of Christ, in A.D. 70, the year A.D. 70, the temple was destroyed, Jerusalem was destroyed. And earlier in this chapter, Jesus is talking about that, and he predicts this. In fact, for the early Christians, one of the things, along with the resurrection, of course, one of the things that helped them to say, we need to treat Jesus' words with authority, was the fact that everything he had said about the temple and about Jerusalem being destroyed came to pass. And so there are many of these, these words in, in Matthew's gospel, in Mark's gospel, that are meant to be heard with the sense of, wow, that happened. There's also a sense in which all of this apocalyptic language, end-of-the-world language, is really taking place at the cross. Listen, two chapters later, Mark's going to talk about the crucifixion scene, and he's going to talk about the world going dark. Other gospel writers talk about the ground shaking. There's this end-of-the-world apocalyptic language. Why? Because on the cross, it is God coming at last to defeat his enemies, the greatest enemy of all, sin and death and the devil himself, right? And so this end-of-the-world language that we read in the Gospels is surely meant to point us toward how the world as we have known it, founded on sin and rebellion and death and violence, the world as we have known it ended at the cross. And in the resurrection, a new world began to dawn, although only a few of us see it. Now, you're listening to me and you're saying, oh my gosh, what? Someday we'll spend a lot longer and talk about all of this stuff and relook at some of these passages that maybe have, have gone over your heads because you're like, end times, end times, end times. Instead of saying, look, the gospel writers are trying to tell us something has already begun. But many of these texts function like a chord in music. When you play a chord, there's three notes. It has the three notes that you hear, but it also has resonant frequencies, right? That they kind of go maybe even beyond what your ear can hear. There are things in this passage that go beyond AD 70, that go beyond what we can see and hear and look back to. There are moments that, it, that it's pointing ahead to. In fact, Paul, in the New Testament reading, refers to a future coming, a great revealing and appearing. So there is a sense in which when we hear these words about staying awake and being alert, 
that we're meant to also say, oh, this is still for us. This wasn't simply for them, it's still for us. So what do we see in this text? What do we see in this text as people who are trying to live between two arrivals? People who are trying to live between the God who has come and the God who we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. I have three words for us this morning, three very simple words that I want us to think about. The first word is work, working. May the Lord find us working. As we wait, we are to be working. It's interesting that the Christian vision of hope does not result in passiveness. In other words, Christians say, because I know what's coming, I work now. Does that make sense? Because I know what's coming, I begin to live now as it will be then. I begin to pray now, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're already beginning to anticipate this, and so we work. This is why so many of you that work in in, in ministries or in organizations that are trying to bring justice, I'm thinking of Dan O'Brien and the work with Shared Hope that that, that works to change some of the laws uh, regarding to, to stop trafficking here in the United States. I think of different ones of you and the different work that you do to say, I am trying to interrupt this injustice in the world now. I am working now because I'm anticipating what's coming. See, as Christians, we don't look at the great return and say, well, God's going to fix it all, so there's nothing really I can do. I'll just sit and hang around. No, 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 no. Jesus says the master of the house has given us work. Each one must do the work he's assigned. Paul says in our 1 Corinthians passage for the day that God has given each one of us gifts, graces, One of the things to reflect on this week, maybe this season of Advent, is to say, God, what are the graces? What are the gifts? What are the places you put me in, in my home, in my workplace, in my cubicle, wherever I am? Lord, where are the places that I can do your work in the midst of my work? How can I redeem my own work by not seeing it as simply my work, but your work that I'm doing? Putting to use the gifts and the graces that we've been given. But the second word is watching. We are to be watching, to be alert, to be attentive. I love the dramatic reading that we heard this morning because it describes that kind of watchfulness, doesn't it? This thing of saying, well, God's going to speak to me. God's going to move. God's going to show himself. And instead of waiting for a glory cloud and gold dust, we end up saying, maybe God has shown up to me in the form of the neighbor who needs my help or in the form of the person that I have the ability to help or encourage or pray with. See, it's just like God to show up in the most unexpected ways and places, amen? You think about nobody, nobody expected a smelly animal trough as his crib. Nobody expected the cross to be his throne. Nobody expected thorns to be his crown. But that is just like Jesus. And it takes a certain kind of watchfulness to say, God, where are you at work here? Where are you on the move? Finally, the third word is the word waiting. We are to be found waiting. You know, waiting is not something that we like to do. It's not something I like to do, and it's certainly not something our culture as a whole likes to do. 
Uh, I mean, there, there's several examples of this, right? I mean, uh, from, from food to uh, checkout lines or whatever. But, but hey, what about a few days ago when Black Friday, instead of beginning on Friday, began on Thanksgiving night, right? Or what about Cyber Monday that was actually all weekend long? Because why wait till Monday when you can get online now? And the, this isn't the moment to decry the evils of consumerism. <laughs> but it is a playful reminder that we are terrible at waiting. We don't want to wait. We know what we want, and I need it now. Two days shipping with Amazon Prime is not enough. Bring on the drones. <laughs> but you know what waiting does? Waiting reminds us that the thing that we actually need is beyond our reach. Waiting reminds us that the thing that I actually need is beyond me. It's out of my control. It's like the confession that that addicts make when they say, I am powerless against my own addiction. That's actually a confession that all of us come to as believers. Where we say, all right, Jesus, I cannot bring about the change I desire most. I can't bring about the change in the world that I desire most. I can't bring about the change in my heart that I desire most. And so, in a very real sense, I'm waiting. Because waiting reminds me that I need you. We wait. We wait. I think about Mary. The amazing picture of this. Not a pregnancy she did anything To have. The Holy Spirit overshadowed her. Something from beyond her was placed within her. And it began to grow in her. That sounds like the grace of God, doesn't it? Something beyond your reach, beyond your grasp. Not self-help, not do-it-yourself, not self-improvement, not a New Year's resolution, not a I'm going to be a better person this year. But the grace of God coming to us from beyond us, coming inside to change us. When we look at our world, we don't have to look far or think hard to think of all the ways that our world is still in exile, is in mourning, is in waiting. On Monday night when the grand jury announced their decision about Ferguson, There was a whole slew of responses. Some were outraged, some were relieved. Everybody had something to say about it. And regardless of what you may think about it, I suspect that we can all agree that this week was yet another painful reminder that our world is not experiencing the shalom, the peace, the wholeness that God intends. It may be one of the reasons this picture was so moving. It's a picture taken from a rally in Portland, Oregon. This little boy, Devontae Hart, he was born as a drug baby. By the time he was four years old, had handled guns, had been shot at, had only known curse words as a regular part of his vocabulary. These people adopted him, began to raise him. And in this rally, he's crying. Because just before this scene was this standing there with a sign that says, free hugs. And the police officer calls him over and says, talk to me. And they begin to have this conversation. He says, I'm just scared. 
And then they have a little bit more of a conversation. The police officer says, can I get one of those free hugs you're offering? And he does. And maybe this picture grabs us at the core because it's our modern day version of what Isaiah said. The lion and the lamb will lie down together. And we long for this. A kind of peace and harmony and reconciliation that is beyond the reach of any person or system. Something that only God can bring. Of the many things that were said and written this week, the thing that moved me was a piece written by a football player. Go figure. For me. An NFL player named Benjamin Watson and an African-American young man, and this is what he wrote. At some point while I was playing or preparing to play Monday Night Football, the news broke about the Ferguson decision. And after trying to figure out how I felt, I decided to write it down. Here are my thoughts. I'm angry because the stories of injustice that have been passed down for generations seem to be continuing before our very eyes. I'm frustrated because pop culture, music, and movies glorify these types of police-citizen altercations and promote an invincible attitude that continues to get young men killed in real life away from safety, the safety of movie sets and music studios. His several paragraphs describing an emotion. He says, I'm fearful because in the back of my mind, I know that although I'm a law-abiding citizen, I could still be looked upon as a threat to those who don't know me. So I will continue to have to go the extra mile to earn the benefit of the doubt. I'm embarrassed because the looting, violent protests, and law-breaking only confirm and in the minds of many validate the stereotypes and thus the inferior treatment. I'm sad because another young life was lost from his family. The racial divide has widened. A community is in shambles. Accusations, insensitivity, hurt, and hatred are boiling over, and we may never know the truth about what happened that day. I'm sympathetic, he says, because I wasn't there, so I don't know exactly what happened. Maybe Darren Wilson acted within his rights and duty as an officer of the law and killed Michael Michael Brown in self-defense like any of us would in the circumstances. Now he has to fear the backlash against him and his loved ones when he was only doing his job. What a horrible thing to endure. Or maybe he provoked Michael and ignited the series of events that led to him eventually murdering the young man to prove a point. I'm offended because of the insulting comments I've seen that are not only insensitive but dismissive to the painful experiences of others. I'm confused because I don't know why it's so hard to obey a policeman. You will not win. And I don't know why some policemen abuse their power. Power is a responsibility, not a weapon to brandish and lord over the populace. I'm introspective because I want to take, quote-unquote, our side, speaks, writes this as an African-American young man, without looking at the facts in situations like these. Sometimes I feel like it's us against them. Sometimes I'm just as prejudiced as the people I point fingers at. And that's not right. How can I look at white skin and make assumptions but not want assumptions made about me? That's not right. I'm hopeless because I've lived long enough to expect things like this to continue to happen. I'm not surprised and at some point my little children are going to inherit the weight of being a minority and all that it entails. 
I'm encouraged. But, excuse me. I'm hopeful. Because I know that while we still have race issues in America, we enjoy a much different normal than those of our parents and grandparents. I see it in my personal relationships with teammates and friends and mentors, and it's a beautiful thing. And then his last paragraph. I'm encouraged because ultimately the problem is not a skin problem, it's a sin problem. Sin is the reason we rebel against authority. Sin is the reason we abuse our authority. Sin is the reason we are racist, prejudiced, and lie to cover for our own. Sin is the reason we riot, loot, and burn. But I'm encouraged because God has provided a solution for sin through his son Jesus and with it a transformed heart and mind. One that's capable of looking past the outward and seeing what's truly important in every human being. You see, the cure for Michael Brown, Trayvon Martin, Tamir Rice, and Eric Garner tragedies is not education or exposure, it's the gospel. And so finally, I'm encouraged because the gospel gives mankind hope. And that is what Advent is about. Advent is about remembering that God did not stay far off, that God entered our world, that he suffered the worst that our world could do, that he took on himself all of the shame and sin and brokenness and pain and rose in victory over it. And so this Advent, we hope. And as we hope, we work and we watch and we wait. And we pray, come, Lord Jesus.